Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and islc.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Hello, my name is Dr. Narjos Flores. I'm the Associate Director of Cancer Care Equity and a member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School. Today, I have the pleasure to interview the presenters of the Presidential Symposium at the World Conference on Lung Cancer in Vienna, Austria. We are going to start with Dr. Mariano Provencio. He's the head of the oncology department at the Hospital Universitario de Puerta de Hierro, Majada Onda. Welcome, Dr. Provencio. So you presented the results of the Nadine II study, a phase two randomized study evaluating nivolumab versus nivolumab in chemotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting for stage 3A and B. Dr. Providencio, can you give us a summary of the findings of this very important study? Yeah, um, uh, this study is focused on um, especially uh, um, patients with locally advanced disease, stage 1B to 3A, according to 8 edition, locally advanced disease and 2 disease and T4 uh, um, um, tumor. And then this study conferred the superiority the uh, chemo plus immunotherapy versus uh, chemotherapy alone. Uh, this is the uh, current treatment uh, nowadays, that uh, only chemotherapy. And uh, the chemo plus immunotherapy uh, improved the PCR, the pathological complete response, the uh, progression-free survival, and also um, longer overall survival in this type of patients. Thank you. This is truly a study that we were waiting for. One question I have for you is, during the presentation, it was mentioned that the patients were evaluated by a multidisciplinary team. Yeah. And I think we're continuing to learn about the importance of the multidisciplinary team. Can you give us a little bit of a scoop how this evaluation happened? Yeah, I think th th this is the most important result. The, the, the role of the multidisciplinary team, we can uh, range or mes have measure of the, this aspect that is crucial in my opinion is a new tool for multidisciplinary team. Uh, I think the role of the surgeon uh, will become more important in this type of patients because, in my opinion, uh, many patients uh, could, uh, could be up, um, uh, underwear surgery in this type of uh, the, the, the disease. Um, uh, this is a new tool, a new window of opportunity. I think it's very important to our listeners to understand that the multidisciplinary team is recommended across the globe, not yeah. only in academic settings, correct? Yeah, correct. One question to you is the histologic confirmation of N2 lymph nodes. Yeah. How vital was that for the study? Yeah, in, my, in our study, the N2 was mandatory confirmed histologically confirmed abuse or mediastinal sex. And I think that brings to importance the objective data to having the histologic confirmation compared to imaging to understand the real stage of the patient. Yeah, yeah because uh, in Nadine one we saw uh, almost 30% uh, of patients uh, have complete pathological response and the, uh, the PET was positive. And then this was mandatory and uh, I think it's uh, important. One of the part of the team is the um, nuclear uh, doctors, no? 
Thank you. Another thing that we saw in the study is the correlation with pd one levels in PCR, complete pathology response. Will we see in the future a cutoff for pd one or will we recommend this to all patients regarding the pd one level? I think we have to treat uh, regardless the pd one uh, expression. <clears throat> Obviously, we have more um, response, more pathological response, complete pathological response in patients with uh, high pd one levels, but uh, we have 15% of patients with PCR in patients with pd one uh, negative. So that's important. We should take into account how this is changing, particularly for locally advanced disease yeah. that has highest recurrence rate. Another, another concern that we often hear is the worry about neoadjuvant affecting surgery or surgery outcomes. How was this in the Nadine's two study? Did the neoadjuvant regimen affect the surgery at all? No. We don't have any um, uh, death after surgery, and the complication we we will we had published the Nadine two Nadine one with a surgical approach and the time to surgery blood uh, supplementary uh, complication after surgery are the same than the chemotherapy. In any case, the treatment is not quite different than the current treatment is. Chemo plus immunotherapy, three doses, is not high um, doses and bone marrow transplantation. It's only a little more treatment. So I think it's very important for our listeners to understand that the neoadjuvant treatment, one of the worries is not, is not supported by data. The patients were able to get to surgery and did not significantly improve no. surgical complications. Yeah. Is that correct? correct? And Dr. Provencio, my last question. We saw that the most benefit was for the patients that had a complete pathology response. Yeah. So the question remains, what would be next for these patients? Should we continue to follow them, do more therapy? Well, uh, we have to design uh, clinical trials according to th uh, these or the results, according to the pathological response, complete pathological response, or maybe other uh, range of the pathological response. Complete pathological response, in my opinion, is quite definitive. No recurrence, no uh, metastasis disease, uh, completely leave uh, the patients. And we have, in adding one, more than f five years of follow-up and uh, the same information. Um, maybe we have to design clinical trials according this pathological response and treat the patients according to this aspect, and maybe using CTNAN levels also. Thank you so much. I think Thank you. the story is to be told. We continue to learn. In time, we continue to tell what happens with these patients. We have complete pathological response, but this is definitely a new update for our patients yeah. and more treatment opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Narjos Flores. I'm the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber and a member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School. Today, we are doing the highlights for day two, the Presidential Symposium of the World Conference on Lung Cancer in Vienna. It is my pleasure to interview two amazing investigators. First is Dr. Heather Weekly. She's the ILCLC president, a professor of medicine, and the chief of the, of the Division of Oncology at Stanford University. Welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. In addition, we have Dr. Enriqueta Philippe. She's the head of thoracic and head and neck cancer group and the oncology department at the Bald Hebron University Hospital in Barcelona. Welcome, Dr. Philippe. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you. I will start. Um, we know each other, so we are going to be addressing each other by first name for this podcast. Heather, 
this presidential symposium was multidisciplinary. And I think that's something new and innovative compared to any other symposium. Why is this important? Well, the IASLC is the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, and we are an international organization. Um, we are multidisciplinary, um, and our focus is on how do we conquer thoracic malignancies worldwide. And if you think about what it means to conquer thoracic malignancies, you have to be able to prevent, you have to find, and you have to be able to treat um, in a way where you can individualize what's most likely to cure each patient with minimum risk of toxicity. And you can't do that with a single discipline. And as we look at the amazing abstracts that were submitted to this conference, we were fortunate, um, as we often are, in having a lot of really highly ranked abstracts that did come across from multiple disciplines. And of course, there were many others that are fantastic, but as we were trying to uh, establish which are the conference, uh, what do we want to highlight in the presidential, uh, this was a decision I got to play a part in. We also have five amazing conference chairs who have been overseeing, putting this whole conference together, and really looking at the across the abstracts as well. And so as a group, we felt that because we had so many wonderful abstracts that rose highly, and we had really potentially practice changing within early stages of disease, we were able to focus on that. And so we were able to take an abstract that focused on smoking cessation, integration of that into screening with some very positive results. Then we were able, we were very fortunate uh, that we had an opportunity to present a randomized phase three trial for the first time looking at um, the standard lobectomy versus a sublobar resection uh, and have positive results from that, which was absolutely fantastic to be able to present that here for the first time. And then to have updates from two really practice changing studies of, of uh, immune therapy in the perioperative setting, now, an update with event-free and overall survival from Nadine 2, and then an update with the first overall survival cut from Empower 010. And so when you put that all together, it was really an amazing story to be able to tell. And of course, it had to be multidisciplinary, and it was also uh, international as far as the speakers and the discussants. So it was it was wonderful presentations. I think this presidential symposium uh, brings attention to two things. We covered the entire continuum of our patients with lung cancer for the moment of screening, all the moment to preoperative therapy. Something that really brought, like, was important to me is the female representation at the table. And I saw uh, near to equal representation. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because as a young investigator, this is really important. Thanks. I, uh, when we are thinking about who we are as an organization, there are sort of three factors that we think a lot about, and, and multiple, actually. Um, but as we're thinking about who are our discussants, we want to be as multidisciplinary as possible. Obviously, some of our sessions are focused just on targeted therapies, and it's going to be all medical oncologists, and some are on surgical techniques, and it's all surgeons. But when we can be, we want to be multidisciplinary. We also are uh, very focused on the fact that we are international, and so we try to make sure that we have regional representation 
from Asia, rest of the world, from North America, from South America, from Europe. Uh, we would love to have more representation from membership in Africa and other continents that haven't been as well represented, but we sort of think of the, the big three uh, being sort of North America, Europe, and Asia, rest of the world, and want to make sure that we have discussants and speakers from all of those regions. And then we also are very mindful of making sure that we have a gender balance, uh, that we have both men and women, and we also really want to think about the full range of, of experience, right? So we tend to have more senior folks up in the presidential symposium, but throughout the conference, we're very mindful of giving opportunities for people early in their career to be presenting their, their data as well. And so it's from that context that we think about who do we have presenting. Now, the selection of the abstracts, of course, was based on the story and the importance of the data that was being presented. And we did have two of the presenters happen to be women. And I think that just reflects that we have a lot of women who are far along in their careers who are doing outstanding work where their data is the best data that's coming into the conference. And therefore, those are the, present, you know, the discussants that you're the presenters. As far as the discussants, and it's, that's where we're mindful because we know who the presenters are going to be. And we have many opportunities of amazing discussants, but that's where we have to step back and think, are we representing rest of world. It turned out that the data that we had wasn't coming predominantly from Asia, so we were very mindful of having two discussants who were Asian. Um, we also were very mindful of having discussants that were you know, not all uh, folks that everyone's used to seeing up on the podium all the time, but a few new faces. Some, but also some of the folks who are up on the podium all the time always do an absolutely fantastic job, and so not excluding them also. And so that's how we came up with the balance. But obviously, as, as a woman myself, um, I do get distressed when I look up at a panel and see 12 men, because I know that um, though every one of those people who've been chosen are going to do a good job, there are other people who could do a good job who would help to reflect more of the membership and more of the people who are engaged in all of the science. Thank you. Everything you say sounds more complicated than planning a wedding. Because <laughs> it's not only about gender, it's about race, where they're coming from, what multidisciplinary skills they have. Thank you so much, Dr. Weekly. We're going to get to the big boy of the conference, which is I'm Power 010. Um, and we have Dr. Philippe. Dr. Philippe, could you summarize the results of the interim analysis overall survival for the iMPower 010? Yes, thank you. So, yeah, you all know iMPower 010 uh, was previously uh, published, and we knew that uh, for those patients with stage 2 and 3A and pdl one positive tumors, uh, atezolizumab improved the disease-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.66. We also knew that for those patients with stage 2 and 3, respective of pdl one, there is an improvement of disease-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.79, and also that for those patients with stage 1b, 2, and 3a with a hazard ratio of 0.81, the statistical significance boundary was not crossed. We also knew that for patients with stage 2 and 3 and pdl one 50% or higher, the hazard ratio for disease-free survival is 0.43. So, in fact, atezolizumab is approved now uh, for patients with stage 2 and 3a and pdl one positive tumors by FDA, and for patients with stage 2 and 3A, and pdl one 50% or higher, and EGFR and ALK negative tumors by EMA. So today, we have presented the first 
interim analysis for overall survival. And this is important, represents an additional 13 months of follow-up. And we have seen that for those patients with pathological stage 2 and 3 and PDL1 positive tumors, atezolizumab is uh, uh, related to an, to, towards an improvement, a trend toward an improvement in overall survival uh, for those patients receiving atezolizumab with hazard ratio of 0.71. This is important, and also we have seen the opposite for those patients with a stage 2 and 3A. Irrespective of PDL1, there is no difference in overall survival at this stage. There is no difference when we analyze all patients together, stage 1B, 2 and 3A. But one, uh, another uh, important piece of interest is the overall survival for those patients with PDL1 50% or higher and a stage 2 and 3A. And there is an improvement for those patients receiving atezolizumab with a hazard ratio of 0.43. So this is important are the main uh, findings of overall survival, but also we have updated safety and with 13 months of uh, additional follow-up, no any um, signal of uh, any other toxicity. So I think it's important to mention that yes, in this first interim analysis for overall survival, we have seen these results. Thank you, Dr. Philippe. And something important to mention to our listeners is that this is an interim analysis. And Dr. Philippe, can you just explain that, you know, to all of us, because the story is only in the middle. This is not the end. Absolutely. This is the first interim analysis for overall survival. We expect for more, more under the final overall survival analysis. But it's important because as we have, uh, uh, as, as we know, uh, the overall survival results in, pa in patients included in adjuvant strategies will need more than 10 years of follow-up. It's impossible to wait 10 months, 10 years, sorry, to have the the updated the, the, the last results. So yeah, this is important. This is the first interim analysis for our survival. And yeah, we expect probably to have the next analysis later, 2023. To our listeners, so this is just the previous of the overall survival data. And one question to you, Dr. Philippe, is that PDL one really matter here? Despite, you know, being a heterogeneous biomarker, is still guiding treatment. So what can we say about these patients that are higher than 50% in this study? I think for those patients higher than 50%, for me the results are clear. Hazard ratio for disease-free survival and for overall survival, 0.43. In these patients, we should consider adjuvant atezolizumab after adjuvant chemotherapy. I think it's done. And I think something important to mention here is that these patients require to, to get chemotherapy um, after surgery, is that correct? Absolutely. In the trial, all patients receive adjuvant chemotherapy. And also, there is another trial, that is the Keynote 091, in which uh, uh, adjuvant chemotherapy was strongly recommended, but there are 14% of patients without adjuvant chemotherapy, and it's so that this is a subset analysis, but perhaps this group of patients do not benefit in this subgroup analysis of the adjuvant immunotherapy. And I think that's important because adjuvant chemotherapy has been around and we have many trials and more long-term data. So when I discuss this with my colleagues, is the role of adjuvant chemotherapy is here and it would be very hard to overcome that. Dr. Weekly, do you have a comment about adjuvant chemotherapy and how it's going to be hard to get rid of it? 
So uh, that's a, a great question. Um, I think that chemotherapy is looked upon um, very unfavorably in the media. You know, there are plenty of movies where uh, the chemotherapy is the patients obviously doing very, very poorly. It, it, many patients come, um, come in to see me when they've just been diagnosed and say, I need treatment. I'm not getting chemotherapy no matter what because that's this public perception. And I think it's important that we move beyond that because chemotherapy still cures more patients with cancer than most of our other modalities. Obviously, in early stage, surgery is the most important, or radiation. But chemotherapy has been proven to significantly add. And at this point, we've not found anything that's truly a replacement. I think there are questions that come up in the setting of, say, patients whose tumors have EGFR. And we know that adjuvant osimertinib significantly improves disease-free survival. And there are questions about how much the chemotherapy may or may not add. But in that setting, we don't know that the osimertinib improves cure rates. But we know the chemotherapy can. And so not to give chemotherapy in that setting, I think, is harmful. Here with our neoadjuvant and adjuvant trials, the neoadjuvant trials with immune therapy have all used chemotherapy. And the adjuvant trials with immune therapy have as well, because again, you don't want to run away from something that you know has a 5% improvement in overall survival that's been proven over and over again because something's new and shiny um, with immune therapy. I, I mean, we also have now shown that addition of immune therapy does add to, to overall survival benefit, but only in the context of chemotherapy. The next series of questions will be around how do we integrate the chemotherapy and the immune therapy together that's how it's given neoadjuvant, but not in adjuvant. We know in the metastatic setting, giving them both together is superior to giving them separately. And so we will be looking to those trials of combining chemo and immune therapy in the adjuvant setting. There will also be future studies probably looking at, can we get away from chemotherapy? But at this point, it's the standard. And as uh, Enrique had already pointed out, the only data we have from Keynote 091 looked pretty unfavorable for the group that didn't get chemotherapy. So there is something in Spanish, and I'm pretty sure translated will be no fair. But we often praise new saints that they make more miracles, but all saints still make miracles. And I think that is chemotherapy. That's one of my grandma's saying, and I'm not making any fair translation to that. Uh, so this is one of my last questions to the two of you, and it's the incorporation of other biomarker testing besides PDL one And this includes CTDNA. Dr. Philippe, what do you think the future of CTDNA will be for patients in the adjuvant setting? I think this is the next step. Circulating tumor DNA probably will be crucial when we decide the treatment. It's true that uh, we need to know exactly what are the patients that are cured only with surgery. There are some uh, analyses of circulating tumor DNA in IMPOWER 010, but the technology is also improving. So we need to know exactly those patients with minimal residual disease in order to design these postoperative strategies in patients with early stage. I would certainly echo that. I work at Stanford University with Max Dean, so we do a lot of work uh, with minimal residual disease and circulating tumor DNA. I think the assays that we have so far today commercially aren't quite sensitive enough to get to a point where we could use that test and then say this is a patient who doesn't need additional treatment. I mean, we know there are a subset of patients cured with surgery alone with early stage disease. We've always had that group. We just don't know how to find them, and so we end up treating everybody, including them, who don't need treatment, so that we can help the ones who do. I'd, 
I imagine a world in the future where we'll be able to determine after surgery which patients are cured and are done and which patients need additional treatment and then be able to follow to figure out are they on the right treatment that's actually making an impact or not. We're not quite there, and so I think we need to be cautious. Right now, the presence of finding ctDNA after surgery just says that, wow, this patient really needs treatment. And we do have uh, data from Empower O1O that was presented by Shai Kunjo um, at uh, ESMO Asia showing that there are, it was a, one of the meetings last season, sorry, um, where there was a clear uh, benefit, additional benefit, with the adjuvantatezolizumab in that group that still had circulating tumor DNA. Um, present. It was a much higher impact than in those who didn't have detectable DNA. We knew they still were going to recur potentially, though. So I think that's where we're heading. That's a really important biomarker. I will echo again, we still need to really figure out what pdl one means. We know what it means for Empower O1O. It's a clear biomarker, absolutely straightforward. But with the data with uh, pembrolizumab with Keynote 091, that didn't follow the paradigm of what we've known before, and there are other adjuvant trials coming out. I think as we gather more data, we'll learn more about the um, PDL1 levels in addition to more about MRD and ctDNA and others. And I, can I just add one last thing? The one thing that really did strike us from the Empower O1O data that uh, Enriqueta presented is that the patients with ALK positive lung cancer, even though many of them have high PDL1, that was the run group where there was an overall survival detriment if they had gotten atezolizumab. All of the other subsets, you know, seemed positive. There were a few that were flirting right on the line there, but that one was negative. And so we really need to have the full story, including the molecular data for EGFR and ALK especially, as we're making these decisions. So that ends, like, is going to help us end to summarize that patients need to be tested early. And the number one is still testing, testing, testing. Regardless of stage, we need to test our patients, not only for pda one but also for biomarkers. And we should wait after pda one returns, right? Like we, we just made a reference to the wedding. It's not ready yet. The cake is not ready. You need to wait for biomarker testing. So thank you to the two of you. Dr. Philippe, my last request to you is what is your take-home message for our listeners about the data you presented? No, I think uh, you have summarized. Uh, we need testing and we need uh, work together. And also thinking in the presidential symposium, we need also smoking cessation and probably to discuss screening. Thank you to the two of you. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your work conference on lung cancer. Hello. This is Dr. Narjos Flores. I'm the Associate Director of Cancer Care Equity and a member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Today, in this episode of Lung Cancer Concierge, we're highlighting an excellent presentation for the Presidential Symposium at the World Conference on Lung Cancer in Vienna, Austria. It is my privilege to introduce Dr. Rachel Moray. She is at the University of Nottingham in the UK. She presented the results of the YES study. First, I love the name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and this is adding co-located, personalized, uh, stop smoking support um, during lung cancer screening. And it's the Yorkshire, Yorkshire? Yorkshire. Yorkshire Enhanced Stop Smoking Study. Dr. Murray, welcome. And could I ask you to summarize the results of this very important study? Yeah, absolutely. So we offered um, 
stop smoking provision to every smoker that was attending for a lung cancer screening program, um, research program in the UK, um, which is funded by Yorkshire Cancer Research. Um, and we found that about a third of everyone attending for the lung cancer screening was a current smoker. Um, and of those, so 2,150 individuals were deemed to be eligible for a stop smoking consultation at the point of attending. Um, 89% of those who were eligible actually took up the offer of going and seeing our SCP, who was co-located um, on the same mobile unit. And of those, 84% agreed to kind of ongoing support, so ongoing treatment after that initial consultation. Um, so when we looked at how kind of how effective this was, if we looked at the people who accepted the ongoing support, we found that 16.5% um, had successfully quit smoking at four weeks, which was validated by carbon monoxide. Um, and that increased to about 20% if we use the self-reported rates. Um, if we looked at the entire eligible population, then we were looking at around a 12% validated quit rate, um, increasing to 15% if we use self-reported values. And the cost per quitter in both those was, was between £400 and £500 per quitter, approximately. Something that's extremely fascinating about this study, not something, many things, is first that approximately one-third of the participants quit smoking at three months. Is that correct? Is that correct, my interpretation of the results? Yes. Yeah, so everybody was offered stop smoking support for the first four weeks regardless. Um, and at the four-week point, we're then offered enrolment into the YES study. Um, uh, 1,003 people participated in that study. And 33% of our intervention arm, which I can talk about what that comprised in, in a minute, was successfully quit at three months um, compared to 30% of our usual care arm. So yeah, across the board, we were around a 32% quit rate. So can you talk about that intervention arm and what that entitled? Yeah, so everyone that we saw got behavioural support um, on a one-to-one counselling basis. Um, the first consultation was always face-to-face. And then we moved to a telephone model, um, largely because of COVID. Pre-COVID, we tried to offer a, a combination of both. Um, but for the majority, it's been telephone intervention. We also provide nicotine replacement therapies um, and or e-cigarettes and vaping supplies, according to our patient preference. Um, and then the personalised intervention, we took the heart and lung images that were captured during the CT scan. And we put those into a, a visual booklet. And we highlighted areas of coronary artery calcification in the case of the heart image, and areas of emphysema in the, uh, for the lung image. Um, and we also presented areas of healthy lung wherever possible. And the idea of that was to give a message that um, emphysema had, had occurred largely as a result of tobacco smoking, but there are other causes, and we were very upfront about that, but that there were still healthy areas of lung that could be preserved if they were to quit smoking. There are so many aspects of this study that I found Remarkable. First is that you were able to pivot in a study that was being conducted and then a war pandemic happened and you were able to adjust. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because we need to learn to evolve with the current times. And sometimes we see studies that don't evolve. So how was that to, you know, everything is shutting down, you have a large study currently? Yeah, so we had a period of time where we couldn't recruit at all. So the entire lung screening was shut down. Um, so we couldn't do anything in terms of recruiting new patients at that point. Um, we picked those up as and when we were able to. For the patients that were already enrolled, um, there were patients that we were still due to see for that four-week visit face-to-face to deliver the intervention and discuss the booklet with them. And we moved to a model whereby our advisors would have that telephone conversation with the participants and describe what was coming through from their images 
and then we posted it to them so that they would receive it after. Because what we didn't want to do was for them to receive the booklet and open up and get, you know, maybe for the first time be told they had coronary artery calcification or emphysema and not be able to talk that through. Um, so we managed that in, in that way. And then in terms of providing um, the nicotine replacement therapy or the vaping supplies, we sent everything by post. So rather than seeing people on a, on a one-to-one basis, we reverted to the Royal Mail in the UK. And I think that's important to all our listeners. You can evolve as ch- challenges come, and sometimes, you know, we don't see this. Another question related to what you mentioned is the images. And I found that to be, first, very innovative, and second, very practical, because patients can have those images for a long time. So how you came around coming the idea of showing our pa- the patients the images of coronary calcification or lung emphysema, and what were their comments of the patients after that? Yep. So there's long been talk about personalized medicine, which I'm sure, you know, everyone's aware of um, and how we can personalize stop smoking interventions using um, primary care data. Um, And there was a study a few years ago by Hazel Gilbert that used the information in the primary care record and the letter was tailored to those conditions. Um, And the idea to use images was was largely generated by Matt Callister, who's leading the Yorkshire Lung Screening Trial um, in initial discussion. And we kind of developed it from that point, um, using a lot of PPI from um, patient groups to understand how we could best present those images to get the desired effect. Um, so we, we evolved to the booklet that, that we've showed in the presentation um, at the conference. And the participants that have received the booklet have, have taken it really, really well. You know, there's multiple who've told us that it's pinned up on their fridge or it's stuck on their kitchen cupboards or you know, if they've quit and they're feeling like they may relapse, they go and get that booklet out of the cupboard and it just prompts them to think, you know, this, this is where I'm at and I want to survive to see my grandchildren grow older or I want to go and achieve X, Y or Z, whatever their own personal goal is. So it's been received really well. And I have to say the phrase that a picture is worth a thousand words is an example of that. Because if a patient sees those images in the fridge, it's a daily reminder of the importance of smoking cessation. Exactly. And the fact that it's their own heart and their own lung that they're looking at means they can't escape it. You know, you can normally disassociate yourself from images that are on cigarette packs, for example. You know, and you say, that's not me, that won't happen to me. But there is just no getting away from it when it's your own image and it's in front of you. I think there's so much learning about this that I have taken. One of the, the things that you saw were gender differences in the intervention. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so when we looked at the um, the effect at the seven-day point prevalent abstinence at three months, which was the study's primary outcome, we found a significant interaction around sex. Um, and generally, there was, a, there was no difference in our male quit rates um, between the intervention and the control arm, really. But what we did find was the um, quit rates between the intervention and the usual care in women was about 10% different being higher in the intervention group. Um, and the usual care was also about 14% lower than their male counterparts in, in the same group. So there was clearly some effect that's going on here in females. And we've got a lot of work to try and understand why that was. Um, and there's a process evaluation being undertaken, which will try to, to get some answers to that. It may be that the population who've self-selected to attend for lung screening in the first place is slightly different. Um, in the UK, in this age group, we would normally see a slightly lower quit rate in women than we would in men. Um, but certainly not to the the extent that we've seen and the the effect of the booklet. 
So, I mean, we're only one study. We're in one region of the UK, and I think there's a lot more work needs to be done. You know, I wouldn't want to say here that it didn't work. It doesn't seem to have, you know, had an across-the-board effect in our population, but there is something we need to understand about these female groups. And whether we do need to be considering, do we need gender-specific intervention now? You know, the, the women who are attending for, for lung cancer screening may be very different to our general population. You know, we're personalising medicine. We, we perhaps need to be looking now at what we can do better. And I think that's very important because the first step to precision oncology is to understand that men and women are equal but different. And some early data from Massachusetts General Hospital show also some differences in the smoking sensation. So I think the story is just opening to understand more about these gender differences. One thing that's very important about your study is that you mentioned cost. And cost is important not only in the UK or the US, but globally, because that's what drives this work. So can you tell us about, you were mentioning quickly about the cost of poor patient and what this means. Yeah, so uh, I can't remember the cost off the top of my head. They were between kind of 400 and 520 pounds, um, either for just the general intervention that everybody had or the personalized intervention. Um, and there's no question that the majority of the cost for the intervention is from the radiographer time in terms of you know, identifying the scans and highlighting the correct areas. I think there's a potential to roll out looking at AI that could automate this process and make it you know, a lot quicker and a lot cheaper um, if there is potential. But in the grand scheme of things, that cost per quitter was based on the consultation and the, the pharmacotherapy costs. So you know, if you put that into context of, of what a lung cancer screening program is going to cost or treatment for lung cancer, it's a drop in the ocean. You know, and I think it's it's more about forward planning and, and looking towards preventative medicine rather than curative medicine. And it's the place to be investing. I, I that's it's really important because when I saw the numbers in your presentation, I was like, oh, this is significantly cheaper than I imagined. And this also brings attention that we often forget that smoking sensation is cheaper than any of these fancy targeted therapies and that it can be done globally. Yeah. So I think that's very important. My last question to you is, we have a lot of stigma and judgment around smoking that we're trying to eliminate. And you mentioned how your team work on this. Can you just pan a little bit how you created a judgment-free zone for these patients? Yeah, so I think our smoking cessation practitioners are, are incredibly skilled at the conversation that they have. And they very much approach that there is no judgment. This, this isn't a choice that people are making, you know, despite some of the common preconceptions. These people have it. Tobacco dependence is a medical condition that needs treating. You know, and we have a, a, a requirement to be able to treat these and, and accept that they're not to be blamed for what they've done. You know, it's an illness and an addiction like any other thing. And, you know, having that correct approach with them is really important. And it's one thing that was fed back by our participants as being really important that they did have this non-judgmental service that they felt comfortable going in and, and opening up and having these discussions about. Thank you so much. And as we're coming to the end of this recording, um, I think I'm going to quickly summarize the intervention was very important. Gender difference were observed. The cost was not as high as many of the other things we do. And images were um, something that patients still kept in their fridge. So Dr. Murray, what would be your take home message for our listeners about your study? 
So I think we've we've proved, and I would say without doubt, that having the, the co-located service that's available at the time of attending for the lung cancer screening is, is really important. If we start putting barriers in place, asking people to travel to different locations to, to see an advisor at another time, you know, most often these people attending for lung cancer screening have complex lives. They have lots of different things going on that are competing interests. So making it as easy as possible to deliver a, a, an intervention that we know is effective and we know is the most cost-effective intervention that is available in medicine is, is almost a no-brainer to me. You know, we need to be getting on board to how we can be thinking outside of the envelope of the pure lung cancer screening because, you know, we, we might detect 2% of lung cancers within screening, which is fantastic, but, you know, 30 to 40% have this treatable condition that is tobacco dependence, and we owe it to these people to give them the best treatment that we can. Thank you so much, Dr. Maureen. To finish to our listeners, smoking sensation have been proven to improve survival in our patients. Patients even diagnosed with cancer already, if they proceed with a smoking sensation, they will live longer and live better. It is my pleasure to have Dr. Murray in this highlight of the World Conference on Lung Cancer. This is Dr. Narjos Flores and this another episode of Lung Cancer Concert. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.